you'll join me in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians 3, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If you want to follow along in the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 981 and 982. We will be looking at chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4 and verse 1. The title of our sermon this morning is Awaiting a Savior. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are imitate, belly, and stand. <clears throat> now, have you ever caught yourself talking to someone and you begin to mimic them, you begin to imitate them without knowing it? The way you talk, the way you hold your body, the way you smile. Because of that, every night I line up my family and we do elocution lessons to make sure that they hear and practice things. So instead of saying things like y'all, they say you all. Or they say over there instead of over yonder. Or going to and Instead of fixing to, I have no hope. My kids are Georgia kids. There's my favorite, of course. Maybe instead of might could. (laughs) My son says he drinks water. And I'm certain at some point he will ask me if I yawn to. Bless their hearts. (laughs) They live in Savannah and it comes out like molasses spilling out of their mouths. If you spend a significant amount of time in a place around people who sound or act in a certain way, it's likely that you will start to imitate them. While your natural way of speaking never goes away entirely, there is a sense in which you adapt to match. Linguistic and behavioral specialists call this mirroring, and they actually believe that we all have a specific neuron that helps us respond appropriately in situations. It's one of the things they look at in a person who always responds inappropriately in situations to see if their specific neuron is damaged. People who don't pick up on certain social cues and don't don't adapt in some way to their situation. And it's interesting because it's a response that comes in the way we talk it comes in the way that we act, whether or not it's, it's uh, positive or negative circumstances that are unfolding. We know whether to be loud. We know whether to be quiet. Even things like yawning. You ever sit around people and they start to yawn and so you yawn and me mentioning that right now makes you want to yawn and you're going to yawn as I talk about it. There are actually numerous things. There's theories about mirroring or imitating others. At some point, all of us have to admit that we whether or not we like it, that we do things just like our parents did. God help us. (laughs) But there are certainly people that we know, there are people that we meet or people that we observe from afar that we think, I really wish I was more like that person. There are several older men that I know, pastors, missionaries, mostly in my life, and I often think, wow, I really wish I had a heart more like that guy. I really wish I was as godly as he is, that that my pursuit of holiness, my communion with God reflected more of what I see in his life. And, and what we're going to see in our text this morning is that there really is a type of person with a kind of heart that we ought to imitate. There are certain people, certain kinds of people, that it is good and right to strive to be like, while there are certain others that it is good and right that we seek to avoid, to make sure that we are nothing like. 
So we see this morning what Paul writes, and we, we seek to fix our hearts on applying his wisdom, that we might learn to imitate the godly, and that we also might learn to avoid and reject those who walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's read together chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. We'll go all the way through chapter 4 and verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my Beloved. Now, you'll recall from the text last week, the Apostle Paul helped us to see the need for sanctification, to have a right understanding of a relationship between the law and the gospel in our lives that we might have more intimate communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming like Him, straining after Him in righteousness, not of our own, but one that is provided by Christ because of what Christ has done, straining in the run, having our eyes on the finish line, knowing that while the results of that race are already in, if we are in Christ, the finish is declared, it is completed, but we still have a responsibility along the way. We still need to get there, and we need to do so with all that God gives us, all that God does in us to be able to do so. And so we look This morning at this text and in verse 17, Paul gives us more helpful instruction on how we can continue to walk faithfully. Four different points this morning. The first one is this in verse 17, that we must imitate those who imitate Christ. On initial reading of this verse, there could be no doubt a sense that maybe Paul has has gotten a little bit self-centered, a little self-righteous. He says, imitate me. Imitate you? What's so special about you, Paul? But notice, he doesn't just talk about imitating himself. He writes, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So this isn't just about Paul. This is about Paul and his companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom we have looked at in previous chapters. But he's, he's also not just him and these two other faithful servants of God who are giants of the faith. These are, these are men who were practicing all that Paul has been exhorting all along. Remember, especially through, through chapter 2, that constant drumbeat that we had, that as Christians we are called to live as a people who are dying to ourselves, living for the advantage of others, not seeking our own interests, but seeking the interests of our neighbor. And so we see Timothy, we see Epaphroditus doing this, and of course we see Paul living out these imperatives, living all of this out and pursuing Christ faithfully day by day. But it's not just them either. He says, imitate whoever there is that they have their eyes on who are walking according to this example that Paul has set, this example of what Paul has preached. 
He says, look at those men, look at those women who walk according to Christ and imitate them. Now, I know in my life, I am very grateful for my formal education. I'm very grateful for opportunities that I've had to grow in my faith and understanding through academic training. It's invaluable. I think every pastor should have formal training, if possible. And and I wouldn't trade any of that away. However, the greatest education for anyone is not in a classroom with a career academic, but it is in a local church with older, wiser men and women of the faith who have walked with Jesus for many years that we can look at and we can imitate. From my perspective as a pastor, I realize the most difficult problems I will encounter in ministry aren't dealt with in seminary training because they can't be. There are a lot of trials we encounter that simply come down to needing experience in a school of hard knocks. And wouldn't you know it, Timothy was doing just that with Paul for many years. Paul invested in his young pastor-protégé. Paul called Timothy his true child in the faith. On Paul's second missionary journey, he met the young man Timothy in, in Lystra. His earliest, Timothy's earliest spiritual formation came as he watched those saints older than him. In his case, it was his mother Eunice and his, and his grandmother Lois. His father was a Greek man, and so he did not have a Christian man providing any kind of foundation for him as a basis for life and his faith. We aren't told what Paul saw in this young man, Timothy. Perhaps it was an evident giftedness, and he wanted to use him in the church, or simply a compassionate desire to provide Timothy with with what Paul knew. He knew his father wasn't there for him, and so he wanted to fill that role. Whatever the circumstances, Timothy's experience with Paul was a priceless blessing. It had tremendous value for not only Timothy, but for the entire church, and I would say for us even today. And as Timothy imitated Paul, we we gain another faithful man whom we can imitate in the faith. And ever since the church was founded, we have had more and more faithful men and women to imitate their way of life, and it continues on to this day. That's why I think in so many ways it's important for Christians to read biographies of of Christians, to read about their lives and the things they've done, that we can look to their example and imitate them. When young Christians, and I, I don't just mean young in age, I mean those who maybe haven't walked with Christ for very long. When we, when we have someone to imitate, we are on a good path. But if we don't have anyone to look to, to turn to wisdom, for wisdom, to turn to for correction and training in the Christian faith, we can be a potential danger to ourselves and to others. Young Christians like Timothy need older, wiser, faithful Christians like Paul. Wise, seasoned, humble, faithful, gracious fathers of the faith helping steer the way forward. Paul's desire was to keep Timothy from thinking and acting like he needed to be some obnoxious trailblazer for the church, like the church wasn't going to make it without him. Paul wanted Timothy to model a ministry for other gospel ministers, to be faithful, to keep pursuing the things of God, no matter what went on around him. And so Paul offers Timothy his sound wisdom. He instructs him to keep his focus on the main things, especially after Paul died and was gone. And we all need that. Even though 
most of you aren't going to be in ministry for your calling in life in terms of your career, you still need other Christians in your life to imitate. And we see that in all other aspects of life, too. There was a day when jobs were learned, not in a classroom, but on the job. Apprenticeships. When, when Johann Sebastian Bach was a young man, he studied a great organist and composer, Dietrich uh, Berthude. Bach made repeated long trips to study in the church, to sit at the feet of this master organist. He copied the composer's scores by hand. All of this, if you compare them, had an obvious effect on Bach's music and style. He followed the example of the one he sought to imitate. And so it is in every area, from the arts to the trades to business to sports. If you uh, ever watch the Golf Channel, the commercials during uh, during the match, they're always they always have all of these different gadgets that you can buy, and all the thing is going to fix your game right away. Uh, I always want to know: Are the pros using this? If they're not, then I don't want to. Because I can already swing the golf club badly, I want to imitate those who do it really well. So I don't need all kinds of stuff, I need to imitate those who do it well. So it is with our Christian lives, we need to identify those God has put in our lives, we need to take note of the quality of their lives, we need to see what is worth imitating, figure out what it is about their way of life that gets them to the place where they are where they can walk faithfully and joyfully and in such a godly manner, and we need to get that into our lives by imitating them. So as we think about what Paul has been teaching us, think of his passionate pleas. He said, we we looked at earlier in chapter 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We also hear him say, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining, striving for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He draws us upward. He sets our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. But along the way, we we, we need the collective example of the entire church. We need the example of the Eric Littles like we talked about last week, men who died running for Christ. We need pastors and missionaries and elders who walk according to the example of Paul and all the apostles. We need faithful, gray-headed believers who have knocked, who've been knocked down many times, have been beaten up and have gotten back up, have always found their footing in Christ to help us through the hard knocks of life. We need those who have suffered physically, who have, who have endured pain and torment in this life who have done so faithfully that we can look to them and learn from them through trials and difficulties in our own circumstances and storms. It's so important that we constantly desire to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering and that we learn about these things not just through the means of God's Word but through the other means of grace which is His people. That we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call with all of our being. This is what our children need to see. This is what our students need to see. They need to see living examples to imitate. God blesses that. 
One of the reasons God blesses so many children of Christian homes to become believers themselves is because they've had that example lived out before them. They've been, they've been exposed to all the means of grace, and God is pleased to give them faith. They have living examples to imitate in their own lives, to look to God in times of need, to look to Christ for all of our hope. And those who pursue Christ will produce those who pursue Christ as they imitate them. And it is only those who continue to run after Christ who will stand firm in the faith. The second thing we see in our text this morning from verses 18 and 19 is that all of us will know people who turn to become enemies of the cross. Paul shifts gears now and he shows us the complete opposite of all that he has just written about. Now he's pointing to those who are enemies of the cross. And notice he says right up front there in verse 18 that there are many. There are many. But why does he write that he's telling them, even with tears, he says? Remember before he addressed those who he called dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh? And he had no remorse in doing so whatsoever. He wasn't emotionally broken, over, broken up over attacking them. But he, here he, he expresses great sorrow. Literally, he writes, I speak weeping. Why? Well, the indication is that these people that he's writing about here are people who were once professing Christians. Very likely, they were people who were at one time even members of the church in Philippi and still living in their community, still in their neighborhoods, but they're not living as Christian people any longer. Not only, though, are they not part of the church, but he says that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not just that they're indifferent to the things of God, they're, they're turned against the things of God. These are people that Paul once ministered to. He probably spent time speaking into their lives, loving them, serving them, counseling them, pointing them to the truth, praying for them and with them. And then to hear, they're no longer walking with the Lord. They've abandoned the faith. They're opposed to Christ. That broke his heart. And and look in verse 19 how he describes them. He says, their end is destruction. There is no hope for them that where they're walking now will end in life. Their end is destruction. They will be destroyed. The great and mighty and powerful judgment of God will fall upon them because they have denied the truth that they know and even once professed to believe. He says their God is their belly. Now, this isn't that they worship their stomachs, but it is a way of saying that their bodily desires, the the sensual, fleshly desires, have become their God. There was a way that the the Greeks often talked about the, the human soul. They talked about it in three parts. And one of those parts was the appetitive part of the soul, and that had two things to it. It was the table, food and drink, and it was the bed, so laziness and sexual desire. The Greek philosophers all had their mind, um, they had in mind that these three parts uh, were always working in every person, and some had to be restrained by the others. And so, no doubt, Paul is probably addressing this to his Greek audience, knowing they have this in mind. 
In other words, he's saying they worship their sensory. They worship the fleshly. They worship what feels good at the time and in the moment. They live for instant gratification. Phil Riken writes, The Philippian apostates were digging their grave with their own teeth as they chewed upon their earthbound impulses and the cut of personal pleasure. The pursuit of creature comforts displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross. Every one of us can name people that we know who have rejected Christ and instead have lived for bodily pleasures and comforts. Life for them is all about the food they eat, the clothes they wear, the house they live in, the car they drive, the things they do to satisfy their pleasures. Where they go, who they're with, all of it serves to displace the cross, to turn to their bellies. And there's a warning here for all of us, isn't there? Beware that our pleasures, beware that the things that God has given to us as good gifts to enjoy and to delight in because they are gifts from our Father in heaven do not impede our passions in our pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can very easily turn good things that God has gifted us with into idols that we worship, and then all of a sudden our bellies have become our gods. Are you in danger of that? Paul also writes that these people, of these people that they glory in their shame. It's building. It's building up in their bellies as their gods. He's, he's talking about their excesses, and, and most specifically, he's talking about all of their sexual proclivities and how they not only indulge in sexual immorality, but they glory in it. They brag about it. They talk about it all the time. It's become a game to them, as if it's some sort of badge of honor that they wear. They glory in what God has called shameful. They revel in the fact that they are doing what God has called profane. And all of this is pervasive all around us, isn't it? You can hardly listen to a popular song anymore without the main theme of the song being a person's sexual exploits in graphic detail. There's barely a movie on television that doesn't have everyone pursuing a sexual rendezvous rendezvous with everyone else. It seems like once a week or more we're hearing about some sexual scandal of some celebrity or politician being exposed for what they've done with others. They've gloried in their shame. This is the way of the apostates of Philippi. This is the inevitable track that apostates run on. They're untethered from truth. They're untethered from the conviction of the law that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. And since they've become God's enemies, there's no major problem for them to stretch it a bit further to become one who glories in their shame, giving themselves over to all kinds of sexual immorality. Here in verse 19, also he writes that their minds are set on earthly things. They don't, in other words, they don't have thoughts of God. They aren't concerned to meditate on the truth of God's Word, to contemplate His grace, to think about His attributes, to be prayerful, to be thankful to Him, to worship Him. No, their whole inner disposition is taken over by earthly thoughts and earthly things. There's no thought of God in their minds. There's no regard for God in their lives. They live for themselves. They live for the things of the world. They have come full circle once professing to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They've now rejected him completely, abandoning their pursuit of the cross, setting their minds back on the world. Now, you and I, as Christians, we know people like this. We all know people who have turned, once professing faith, and yet have walked away. Sometimes you'll meet someone that says, I used to be a Christian. Well, that's not actually a thing. You used to say that you were a Christian, but you either are or you are not. It's not something that you go in and out of. I realize it's 2018, and you can say you want to be something, and apparently you are, but that's not actually how it works. You're a Christian by virtue of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, receiving a new heart, being made a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace, who grants us the faith to believe all that Christ did in His perfect life, in His sacrificial death and resurrection. If we believe this, if we receive this, if we live in light of this gospel truth, that is what identifies our Christianity, not simply saying that we are or we aren't. There's a fundamental change that takes place. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That is what it is to be regenerated. Has that happened for you? Are you a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, or is your mind ultimately, is your heart ultimately set on the things of this world? By faith, the Lord calls you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Him that all that He did was sufficient for you. The life He lived, He lived in place of sinners, perfectly fulfilling God's law. The death He died, He died in the place of sinners, taking upon Himself the wrath that is owed to us all. The time he spent in the grave is the time that we are called to spend in the grave for eternity for our sins, but he conquered that death and brought about new life through the resurrection. And he reigns and rules from the throne of heaven for eternity. Do you trust in that Christ? Do you love that Christ who has accomplished all of that for you, that by faith you may have life eternal? He calls on you to put your faith in him, to love him, that you not have your mind set on the things of the world, but on the things of God. That you might be one who faithfully imitates those people of God who are imitating Christ. And one of the gifts of following Christ is what we see in our third point this morning in verses 20 and 21. It is that those who are in Christ are citizens of heaven. Paul moves us from the earthly focus of the enemies of the cross to remind us of our reward to set our eyes heavenward toward Christ, that we would remember where our citizenship, where we would remember where our loyalties lie as the people of God. Remember, Paul addressed this similarly back in chapter 1 and verse 27. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, he was saying, live as a worthy citizen. Live a life that is worthy of being a child of God. Live a life that is worthy of being a citizen of heaven. We are all dual citizens. And and the contrast that Paul is drawing here is a matter of, of God and our being a citizen of heaven where he is our king and our citizenship as those who are citizens of the earthly kingdom. We are citizens of the United States, or at least green card holders for some. I don't want to discriminate. We are citizens of a nation in, on this earth. How about that? 
And so we have to, we have to acknowledge that. And, and we deal with this in all sorts of ways in life. We understand that there's a, a matter of which one citizenship holds greater sway over us than another. This, this happens in, in smaller contexts. In all of life, we have to make these judgments of, of hierarchy. When I, was 17 year old, when I was 17 years old, I was a shift supervisor at the Starbucks that I worked at. Because as it goes in food service, I was there a few months longer than everyone else. And I showed up to work on time, so I got promoted pretty quickly. I guess you can say I was kind of a big deal. Well, what that meant was I knew the security alarm code. I had keys to get into the store. I counted the money at the end of the shift, and I told everybody when they were allowed to go on a break. If there was a problem with a customer, I was supposed to talk to them. I was take orders off the truck as they came in. However, as important as I was at 17 years old at that Starbucks, I had a manager, the store manager, and that lady was in her 30s. And she had responsibilities. She had rent to pay. Everybody knew that no matter how important I was, and let me remind you, I was very important. (laughs) There was someone far more important than me. And there are levels of, of hierarchy. Someone else is in charge. And that's that's why when I a little secret for you here. When I call service providers on the phone, cable company or the phone company or whatever, they answer the phone after you push one or five or six for five minutes and then you're on hold for 15 minutes and someone answers the phone. I say, hey, here's my name. Here's my account number. You can verify all those details. But can I just talk to your manager's manager because you're not going to be able to help me. It works about half the time. You should try it. But we recognize there's a hierarchy, right? There's, there's always someone who has more authority. There's always someone more important. And Paul wants us to see that while there are important things in this life that we're responsible for and people that we're responsible to and authorities in our lives that we need to listen to and respect and honor and obey, our citizenship here only goes so far. The boss's boss, if you will, is our citizenship in heaven. My citizenship in heaven as a Christian is far more significant and important than my citizenship in the United States. And if the United States demands something of me that goes against my citizenship in heaven, I am called to obey my calling as a citizen of heaven. And Paul goes on to say that it is out of this citizenship, it is out of our being citizens of heaven that we await our Savior and we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes, it isn't going to be Him ruling as an earthly king. Isn't going to be, it's not going to be Him setting up and establishing an earthly reign. It's, going to be, it's not going to be Him sitting on some throne in Jerusalem. It is going to be in a moment when Christ returns, when Christ transforms our lowly bodies into glorious bodies by the power that enabled Him to subject all things to Himself. And we are awaiting yet another very radical transformation. So radical that I don't think we can even begin to fathom what it will be like to have perfect bodies, to have perfect minds, to have perfect hearts. It is so radically different than anything we can imagine. 
But that change is completely necessary because our weak bodies cannot participate in the glorious state of things. And Christ's body is the prototype. It is the model of that which awaits every child of God. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. And as a result, when we enter the rest of that kingdom, we we don't just get clean clothes and a nice house. We get new bodies entirely. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. No more decay, no more indignity, no more weakness, no more shame. We will all be beautiful in the form and appearance with limitless energy, with perfect health. And all of this happens because Christ has been raised from the dead. As we just saw a few weeks ago. Again, we're reminded by Paul of the crucial essence of the resurrection. Christ fulfills mankind's destiny, and in doing so, he makes the universe subject to himself. Everything, everything is of Christ. Everything belongs under the reign and rule of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful encouragement that you and I need not put our hope ultimately in having the right people in the right places in Washington, D.C., Our hope isn't found in having the right governor or state representatives or mayor. Our comfort will not be offered up when we have the best boss at work, when we have the fairest homeowners association, we have the most just landlord. All of these things are under God's sovereign reign and rule. We should pay attention to them. They are important. But ultimately, our greater citizenship is where our hope lies. And for us, just like the Philippians... We aren't awaiting a pale Roman Caesar. We are awaiting a powerful, mighty Savior Creator with a name that is above every name and at whose name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that He indeed is Lord. And for those who do not live as enemies of the cross but who live out their citizenship in heaven... We will one day receive new bodies like Christ's body. And so Paul encourages us in our final point this morning in in chapter 4 and verse 1 that we must stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, just as a side note, uh, most of the time, the Bible does a pretty good job of separating verses and chapters and all of that so that they kind of make a section together. But just a reminder, the verse and chapter numbers are not the inspired text of the Bible. Those came much later after the Bible uh, came together. So every now and then you run into some weird thing like this, where verse 1 actually belongs the chapter before. So nevertheless, that's why we went on into verse 1. But what is Paul saying here? Paul's encouraging us as brothers and sisters in Christ. While others may fall away, while others may become enemies of the cross, all that the world has to offer pales in comparison to being a citizen of heaven. All that is in the world is far too small when compared to what the Lord provides for His children. Christ 
heaven, new bodies. And so Paul concludes that we must stand firm. And and notice Paul's affection for the church once again. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Paul's favorite church, Paul loved them dearly. He wanted so much to see them continuing to stand faithfully in Christ. And, And remember last week, running hard with a full knowledge of Christ, being sanctified in Christ day by day. In light of all of this, in light of being called to to imitate Paul as he lives out a godly example, we've been warned of those enemies of the cross of Christ who have absolutely opposed the things of God. He gives an amazing assurance of our citizenship. He gives us a wonderful, encouraging, hope-filled reason to stand firm, to keep pressing on in faithfulness, running toward the prize that is ours that we looked at last week. And so he calls us, and I call on all of us this morning, brothers and sisters, we must stand firm. And so may it be that the people of God and the church provide all of us with many worthy of imitation. And may the lives of the enemies of the cross of Christ be cause for us to cling all the more faithful to the truth and to take heed of our own souls that we not be deceived. May the wonders of our citizenship in heaven and the future of our renewed bodies and minds and hearts and souls fill us with joy and anticipation and hope, knowing that one day we will be with Christ forever in perfect, unadulterated communion. And may we all stand firm in our pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May it all be to the glory of God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.